Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, we'll start with Renaissance Florence and continue through four of the most important friendships in 19th and 20th century art history. But first, a reminder to listeners in the greater Washington area. This Saturday, that's September 10th, I'll be recording a live audience man podcast with pioneering conceptualist Hamish Fulton. It'll be at the Hirshhorn Museum and Sculpture Garden at 2 p.m. It's free, and I think you'll love it. Hope to see you there. On to the show. In Boston, the Museum of Fine Arts is showing Della Robbia sculpting with color in Renaissance Florence. It'll be there through December 4th before traveling to the National Gallery of Art in 2017. Della Robbia is the first major exhibition in the United States devoted to the family's output. The Della Robbia include Patriarch Luca, who invented the family's glazing technique early in the 15th century, his nephew Andrea, and Andrea's sons Giovanni, Luca the Younger, Marco, Francesco, and Girolamo. The exhibition catalog, published by the MFA, is terrific. Amazon offers it for 45 bucks. We'll have a link on manpodcast.com. My guest will be exhibition curator Marietta Cambereri. She's the Museum of Fine Arts Boston's curator of European sculpture and its curator of Judaica. Next, I'll chat with Sebastian Smee. He's the author of The Art of Rivalry, a new book that offers a critical examination of how four pairs of artists, Freud and Bacon, Manet and Degas, Matisse and Picasso, and Pollock and de Kooning, used competitive friendships to further their work. The book was published by Random House. Amazon offers it for 25 bucks. We'll have a link to that one, too. Just visit manpodcast.com. Smee is the Pulitzer Prize-winning art critic of the Boston Globe. But first up, Marietta Cambereri, after the break. Suspended Animation, an exhibition of six emerging artists working with digital animation, is currently on view at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. By turns eerie, absurd, and entrancing, installations by Ed Atkins, Antoine Catala, Ian Chang, Josh Klein, Helen Martin, and Agnieszka Polska confront us with unsettling visions of our digital selves. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and find out who lives in the uncanny valley. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Frank Stella, A Retrospective, a comprehensive survey of one of the most important living American artists. This exhibition presents Frank Stella's career to date, showcasing his prolific output from the mid-1950s to the present through approximately 100 works, including paintings, reliefs, maquettes, sculptures, and drawings. This retrospective is curated by Michael Opping, chief curator of the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth in association with Adam Weinberg, Alice Pratt Brown Director of the Whitney Museum of American Art. Frank Stella, a retrospective on view in Fort Worth through September 18th. Get an insider's look at one of your favorite art institutions. The Iris is the Getty's blog, offering an engaging, behind-the-scenes look at art in all its aspects. It's a project of the entire Getty community, written by curators, educators, scientists, guest speakers, and many others. Find out how a Getty curator reunited the head and body of an ancient sculpture and explore the charming mystery of an artist's dog who shows up in several manuscripts. Now you can go behind the scenes at the Getty every day by subscribing to the Iris and receiving an email whenever there is a new post. To learn more and to subscribe, visit getty.edu iris. And we're back. 
Marietta Cambereri, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. Nice to be here. So the exhibition's title is a family name rather than a specific artist's name or a group of artists' names. Did you, at any point in the process of, of this show, consider z- zeroing in on one Della Robbia? And, and then why did you decide to approach the family as a whole? I absolutely decided not to zero in on one uh, member of the family, even though Luca Della Robbia, who's the founder of the workshop, the inventor of the technique, and one of the greatest artists of the Italian Renaissance, is, of course, the most famous of the Della Robbia. But because this really was a family workshop that lasted for about a century, and because this really is about a very specific Renaissance technique for sculpture, I really wanted to show that there was more than Luca and that that was part of the story. He works with his nephew, Andrea, for hmm, they're in the workshop together for 30 years. And sometimes it's still hard to know what was made by Luca and what might have been made by Andrea and how they worked together. It was truly a family business and a family style and a family technique. And furthermore, there are other artists who turn to this beautiful technique for other reasons, for uh, the fact that it was so popular during the 15th century. So I very specifically wanted to deal with the whole range of Della Robbia sculpture, which is this glazed terracotta technique. So just to kind of set the parameters at the outset, we're talking about kind of what 90-year range here. Luca invents the technique in the 1440s. He passes it on to his nephew, Andrea, and Andrea's sons, who are also sculptors. By 1525, Andrea is dead. His son, Giovanni, the most famous of the uh, sons of, of Andrea, is also dead. And that basically is the end of the Della Robbia shop in Florence. A second shop, which had been started around 1490 by another artist named Benedetto Buglioni, works in this material until about 1550, at which point Giorgio Vasari is already describing this material as completely out of favor. So by 1550, this glazed terracotta technique, Della Robbia sculpture, is basically done. So you have about a century when artists are working in this material. It falls out of favor because, of course, an extremely influential artist like Michelangelo only believes in sculpting in marble. And other great commissions are going to artists who work mostly in bronze. And so this colorful, shiny material really is not of the taste of the moment and basically falls out of favor. The secrets are lost once Santi Buglioni, the last artist in the Renaissance to really work in the material, after he dies, the secrets are basically lost. So it is a little time capsule of a colorful Renaissance Florence. You noted at the end of one part of your catalog essay that Vasari hedged, noting that Florence would be indebted to Luca for his invention, quote, for all the ages to come. So Vasari didn't totally, uh, <laughs> you know, Vasari played both sides. He loved the Della Robbia, and he felt like he had to explain away all the time he spent in his book dealing with the Della Robbia because they were out of favor. But Vasari comes from Arezzo, which is a town that's famous for ceramic production, and he he loved the Della Robbia. And so we are grateful to Vasari for keeping the, keep, sort of keeping the flame alive. He recognized what Luca did. He recognized uh, and, uh, and lauded him for creating a new art that 
he believed was not known to the ancients. It was a new kind of sculpture. And so he keeps the flame alive. And he really, it's thanks to Vasari's text that we have some of the best sort of phrases about the Delarobia, that it's a sculpture that is um, almost eternal, that it was something that wasn't known to the ancients. So yes, we're very grateful to Vasari and he, uh, that he recognized this in his own time. Let's zoom in on that moment of newness. So Luca della Robbia starts out carving marble. And, and in the catalog, you detail that there's a pivotal moment in his career and indeed in all of Florentine art when Luca develops a glazing technique that delivers these very intense colors and, and this hard, shiny surface that you know we now identify as, as being particularly Florentine and particularly della Robbian, if you will. So what do we know or what can we infer about Luca's switch from marble to terracotta? This is one of the central questions that that Renaissance historians uh, deal with. There's one school that says and loves to say that this was a cheap alternative to marble and that Luca was such a smart businessman that he figured out, and this story too comes from Vasari, he figured out that it would be much easier to work in clay, which is very inexpensive, and much less hard to work, say, than carving marble. And so he was actually looking for an easier uh, method and a method that could mimic marble without the costs or the labor. Many, many of us these days completely disagree with that. <laughs> because if you look at Della Robbia sculpture, and a beautiful example of this in our exhibition is the visitation from San Giovanni for Civitas in the small town of Pistoia, which is essentially all white with just the colors of the eyes picked out in colored glazes, you would say, well, this is what you would have to say. This looks like marble. It doesn't look like marble. It looks like itself. It looks like this beautiful, soft terracotta model covered in this creamy, beautiful, white, shining glaze. So it really doesn't even look like marble. You'd have to be really not seeing it very clearly to say, okay, this is just a replacement for marble. The color white, which I, I say again and again, white is a color in this technique, was achieved with sort of the, the greatest intensity. And finding out how to get this pure, opaque, shiny white really is one of the great aspects of Luca's invention. I tend to think it's about making sculpture even more legible, say, than marble in a dark church interior or in a bright, sunny outdoor space. The color really, really transmits. And the fact that he puts it against a deep blue, that's a kind of visual, it's, a, it's, such, it's such a strong visual effect. One of the things that I like to show when I do lectures about the blue and white of Della Robbia is my favorite thing to show with it is a Matisse cutout where you have blue figures against white. It's such a visual, it has such visual power. Uh, and I think that that is one of the most important things that Luca was seeking, was a way to make his whites even whiter and his blues even bluer so that his important messages are conveyed. We're going to come back to the blue and the white in a moment, but before we get there, do we know today how Luca came to develop his glazing technique or even the formula, if you will, for it? We can speculate. He starts to use it in a limited fashion in a work where he combines marble 
with some areas of glazed terracotta on a tabernacle that was once in a church in Florence and now is, has been moved into a smaller church in a, in a kind of slight, in a suburb of Florence, where he combines marble sculpture with areas of blue glazed terracotta. He develops these ideas, we think, in the 1430s, because by 1441-42, he seems to be working in the technique. One of the things that has been really very, very interesting in this whole process has been that there has been lots of scientific analysis of Della Robbia sculpture. And even in the 19th century, people figured out that if they could figure out the, the, the chemistry or the, the components, they might be able to figure out the recipe. And as uh, scientific analysis has become more and more sophisticated, we've gotten closer and closer to understanding the components. I was shocked to discover as I was writing my labels and I said, so finally, you know, uh, modern scientific analysis is helping us understand the recipes. My conservation and research scientist colleagues made me correct that to say that no, we actually only know the components because there's a degree of transformation in the kiln. So we actually can't write out the recipe for you. <laughs> so for example, we don't know the temperature at which they were fired or like we that. certainly don't know the temperature that they were fired. One of the other magical moments of Renaissance ceramic making is to understand that the workers that ran the kilns judged the temperature by the color of the flames. So we really, we, there's still a lot we don't know and that we may never know. You wrote that uh, glazed terracotta is a particularly Florentine thing. Do you, do you mean that in the sense that that was the only, Florence was the only place in Italy it was made, or was there other, or was there some other kind of deeper regional characteristic or relationship between the material and the craft and the place? Well, the glazed terracotta technique, the secrets of this technique really did live within the Della Robbia workshop, and we know where that workshop was in Florence. It was in Via Guelfa, and the family also owned some land a little bit outside Florence on the Arno River where the, uh, the clay comes from. And the clay is as much a part of the technique as the glazes themselves because the, the, the clay is a very calcium-rich clay that the Della Robbia seemed then to also refine so that after the first firing, when you apply the glazes and it's going to the second firing, the glazes and the clay really marry perfectly. So you don't get a lot of popping of glazes on Della Robbia sculpture. It's very, very sophisticated, very, very accomplished technique. And I say that because, so you're, you're hearing Florentine clay, a Florentine artist, Florentine workshop, and because they did keep their proprietary secrets to themselves, and they owned the land that produced the best materials for this technique. It really, really was Luca and his family, the Della Robbia, producing this material in Florence for a fairly short time. The fact that it showed such amazing ingenuity and technical skill seems to me to make it kind of quintessential Renaissance art form, because what do we think of Florence in the Renaissance? What is it about? It's about creative ingenuity and always trying to improve and develop uh, towards some kind of ideal goal. And that is making things as beautiful and as expressive 
as possible. That's great. That's, I mean, so they were like vertically integrated in, in today's terms. You mentioned the blue and the white. In, in Della Robbia, after Della Robbia, there is a white figure and a blue background of some sort. The blue background is also glazed terracotta, I should note. Was this an invention of Luca's, or was this a nod at a long-used and accepted practice left over from the marble days and from artists who used marble? It's absolutely the continuation of a tradition that starts, that's very, very popular in Florence already in the 14th century when marble sculpture was, for example, applied to some exterior buildings and often there would be some kind of blue background. The understanding of, of white against blue was already quite strong in Florence. So there are a few different kinds of examples. Sometimes it's against a blue glass, and that glass tends to last. Uh, and it probably helped to inspire Luca's glazing, which is actually a type of glass. Other times, we have discovered that white marble was sometimes placed against marble that was painted blue. And that blue has pretty consistently disappeared. And so sometimes we have to uh, find sort of microscopic traces of blue to understand that there was blue behind the white. And that is exactly what Luca was trying to have not happen. He knew that if he had a good glaze, it would last. And that is the other, of course, great thing about this material is that it does endure over time. So he's working within a tradition that Florentines had already been aiming for. So you have marble sculptures for the bell tower of Florence that are actually against ceramic blue tiling. What Luca does is he puts his beautiful white glazed figures against this beautiful blue glaze and kind of unifies and unites them so that they're always both permanent and both extremely effective visually. So, of course, there's not just blue and white, especially as the family's career, if you will, goes on. Uh, lots and lots of other colors come in. Is there any scholarly association of certain colors with certain family members or is it just kind of an ongoing process of development amongst the group? Well, one of the things that people often will say about the Della Robbia, and another thing that we hope to dispel a bit with the exhibition and the book, and this is current scholarship as well, you know, you say, okay, if it's blue, if it's blue and white, it's Luca, the more colors that come in, it's Andrea, and then more colors later on, it's Giovanni. So as it gets later, it gets more colorful, and by implication, it gets a little less perfect, a little less good. But Luca himself really already had complete command over a wide variety of colors, which he sometimes uses to great effect. For example, on a sculpture that is on the exterior of the church of Or San Michele in Florence. It's, it's got blue and yellow and green and white, many colors. We have, an ex we have a sculpture in the exhibition from the Oratory of San Tommaso Aquino in Florence, which is Luca working in a wide variety of colors. He chose to limit himself to blue and white for particular reasons and particular artistic choices. Andrea starts a trend of experimenting with leaving parts of the figures unglazed so that the heads and the faces, the hands, are not glazed terracotta. And that has a slightly greater degree of 
naturalism and simplicity. And Andrea is already doing that in the 1480s and 90s. So then Giovanni comes along and he's a real master of brilliant color, but also one of the wonderful things that he brings out is that he's able to achieve a wide variety of flesh tones. So pinks and browns that mix together to look like all sorts of different complexions in his uh, works. So it's, there's something of a development, but it's a very integrated development. There are different artistic choices made from the beginning. And Luca could practically do everything from the beginning. He was such a, he was such a brilliant artist. This change in the way the Della Robbia present flesh and skin, first as white and then more, you know, sort of naturalistically, is one of, you know, the most interesting things here, I think. Are they, what what prompts them to experiment with that? Are they responding to painting or, or is there something in contemporary religion that that prompts them to, to move away from white, all white flesh and skin? I think you can look at it in both, in, in exactly in both ways. Seeking naturalism, naturalism of figures and space is one of the great goals of Renaissance painting in general, in very general terms, and the Della Robbia were part of that. It's important to remember that in the Florentine Renaissance, especially in the early period, when Luca is uh, coming up as an artist, Painting and sculpture were really not divided the way we tend to think of them as divided today. They were completely interacting. And often sculptors were making visual leaps and and, um, experimental uh, discoveries that then inspire painters. And that's something that sometimes gets lost in our understanding of the Renaissance because we think of some of the great painters and we forget about some of the great sculptors. But the sculptors were always a little ahead of the game, especially in the early 15th century in Florence. And I think of someone like Donatello, but also Luca. And then there are other uh, aspects. As time goes on, there becomes a, a greater desire to achieve greater naturalism or greater simplicity, for example, in some of the more expressive religious works that are produced during the period of Savonarola, so around the 1490s in Florence, when there was a real sense of religious reform, the famous bonfire of the vanities, where paintings were thrown onto the uh, a bonfire in the central civic square, and all of the beautiful richness of Florentine uh, garments and colors and jewels all of a sudden weren't weren't so good as they were waiting for the turn of the new millennium. Is there a, is there a particular Della Robbia or Della Robbias that you think really addressed that moment? In the exhibition, there's a beautiful small Pieta group, a two-figure group of the dead Christ on the lap of, of, of his mother, the Virgin Mary, uh, that is part of the collection of the National Gallery of Art in Washington. And that work by Giovanni Della Robbia has that kind of simplicity and it has the hands, the faces, uh, uh, and the flesh of the body of Christ are all left unglazed and were probably covered with a paint layer to make them even more uh, sort of naturalistic and more severe or more less bright and shiny and more like a body over which you would be contemplating and mourning the death of Christ. So we've been talking about color. Let's switch to form for a bit. Where do the Della Robbia get the idea of using relief? Relief sculpture in early early 15th century Florence is 
absolutely part of the standard production for sculptors in general. So you have, for example, the great reliefs on the baptistry doors by Ghiberti and a century before him by, uh, by Andrea Pisano. So relief sculpture is part and parcel of Florentine sculpture right back into the, into the 14th century. So this is an ongoing tradition. Are there any contemporaries that Luca is particularly engaging or even trying to engage when he uses relief? Absolutely. He is certainly looking at the great sculptor Donatello for, as everyone in his period is, but there's relief sculpture to be seen, for example, a great large-scale relief sculpture by the marble carver Nani Di Banco on the Cathedral of Florence uh, over a side door. There's even some speculation that that's where Luca actually trained and learned to carve in relief. So that is a large-scale out outdoor relief sculpture of the Assumption of Mary. Inside the cathedral, the, the sculptures that precede Luca's debut in glazed terracotta are a pair of organ lofts, one of which is carved in beautiful relief by Luca himself. These relief panels are now in the Cathedral Museum in Florence, and they are his, they're known as the Cantoria, the singing balcony. Uh, these beautiful uh, reliefs of musicians, uh, young boys singing, dancing, children playing instruments, all in praise of, of, of the Lord following Psalm 150. So Luca himself is working in relief before he turns to glazed terracotta relief. So it's, it's very much a part of Florentine sculptural production. The other kinds of reliefs that Luca produces in great numbers and the shop produces in great numbers, of course, are the reliefs of the Madonna and Child. And the production of Madonna and Child reliefs in Florence is enormous because if a, a Renaissance uh, family could have one thing in their home, they would have a Madonna and Child relief. And those are produced in the widest variety of materials possible. We should probably explain how it was the family was able to produce so many, particularly of the Madonna and Child reliefs, as they did. As the shop developed, these kinds of reliefs were extremely popular. And in particular, Andrea della Robbia developed... He really did develop the business side of this whole thing in ways that include the use of molds instead of directly modeling the figures. So this is one of the most interesting parts of this production because for Luca, we don't know of enormous amounts of the same composition being produced again and again in molds, but for Andrea, we do. There are lots, lots and lots of reliefs pr uh, produced by Andrea. And we have to believe, and we can tell this from the technical examination, that he was using molds in the shop. So that meant you had a sort of standard form for particularly popular compositions. And so this meant that, you know, the invo this involved pressing the, the wet clay into these molds. The clay then contracts a bit as it dries, and you pull the clay model out of the mold it still gives you the opportunity to work those figures from the front while the clay is still fairly moist. 
So even works that are reproduced in molds can sometimes be exquisitely finished on the front. So the production in molds, which allowed for a proliferation of, of examples, has come to be associated with the Della Robbia, and it does take some looking and careful looking at some of the examples to pick out some of the very best that survive from the period. One of the things about Della Robbia sculpture that, that really strikes me is the way the figures in in individual works respond to each other and relate to each other. I'm tempted to say that the relationship between figures, especially between groups of figures and a primary figure such as such as a Mary, are more sophisticated in the Della Robbia's work than in contemporary painting. Is there anything about how they pulled that off or why it works that jumps out at you? Having a gallery full of these figures absolutely pushes me to agree with you on this point because the figures do have this incredible sense of personality and humanity and delicacy of interaction. I think a lot of that is also in a lot of other Florentine paintings and sculptures of the time. But somehow the Della Robbia, something about the delicacy and care with which they model their individual faces seems to me really extraordinary. I, I, I know that there are wonderful paintings that show older people and younger people, but I can't think of another example of a Florentine work of art in any medium from the earlier 15th century that is as moving and expressive as the visitation by Luca della Robbia, which is a, an interaction between an elderly woman and a beautiful young woman uh, that is so moving and touching that it's unforgettable. And you uh, spend a few days with them, as we've been lucky enough to do here in Boston, and you feel like you're getting to know them. And every day you get to know them a little bit better, that they reveal themselves a little bit more. I'm really finding that that's a surprise to me, even knowing the objects and putting them together in the show. But the human quality is really touching people and really touching me at just having the opportunity to look at them every day. The little uh, boy made by Andrea Della Robbia from the Bargello, it's one of the most familiar sculptures in Renaissance Florence. And it's so popular that you can still buy reproductions of it. But having him here, you really do feel like you're getting to know him. And he seems like he's breathing and talking and engaging with the people that are coming to visit him. So there is something very particularly human about these figures. Sculpture has that in general, you know, it's three-dimensional, three even when it's in relief, it's in your space, it's trying to engage you. And these are really enormously successful at doing that. Turning from the Della Robbia within art to the Della Robbia within a broader culture in Florence and within the Italian peninsula, are there any examples that you think are particularly good that detail how the Della Robbia engaged with or even, you know, took sides on contemporary Christian philosophy? Well, there is a place that I would really warmly recommend uh, anyone who has any love for this material, for the Renaissance, for the deep countryside of, of Italy, to take a pilgrimage to the site where St. Francis of Assisi 
received the stigmata. It is, it's the monastery of Laverna in Tuscany, up in the hills. And the work was done on the monastery really at the end of the 15th century. And Andrea della Robbia produced a series of altarpieces for different parts of the monastery, the, a spectacular large-scale crucifixion of Christ, for example, and a beautiful annunciation. There's a grouping of della Robbia's there that are so expressive and moving in the context of, say, Franciscan spirituality, uh, but they also show the incredible business sense that Andrea had, and that was that he really developed the ability to create something in the workshop in Florence. They were typically made in pieces. Uh, they were fired in pieces so that they could fit into the Renaissance kilns, but also so that they could travel uh, to their final destinations. And so he brings together this incredible spirituality with this incredible business sense to create really one of the most moving complexes of, of sculpture in Italy. And finally, one of the things I was struck by in the catalog is how good so many of the pictures are. When so many of these pieces in churches and such must be in pretty difficult places to photograph, was this catalog a tough photography job to put together? It was. <laughs> it, there, there, are a couple of, there are a couple of things buried in there. And for, one is, indeed, that it's hard to get good photography of some of the images for example, the Great Visitation in Pistoia, for the catalog, we actually had to rely on, you know, a relatively old image. And if you look closely at the image in the catalog, you'll discover that it's not beautifully conserved the way we see it in our exhibition today. And so we've been able to do some new photography. And I'm sort of hoping that someday maybe I'll have an opportunity to use this good new photography in another setting. The other real challenge of this material is that it is very shiny, and this has to do both with installation and photography. It's really hard to light it with, you know, artificial light because it reflects very, very strongly. So I'm particularly proud of how beautifully our head of, of exhibitions and design, our, our head designer, spent time really working on lighting the show beautifully. And the same goes for photography. There are a number of photographers that are have been shooting Della Robbia sculpture recently, and it's starting to look better and better. It was not an easy book to get to get together for that, but I'm so glad that that you liked the way the photos look. It was a hard it was a hard a hard slog. We'll have links to the book on manpodcast.com. It's a really good one. Listeners should pick it up. Marietta Camperari, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you very much, Tyler. It's a pleasure. After a major three-year expansion, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art returns as the largest art museum in the U.S. dedicated to modern and contemporary art. New exhibitions include works from the Doris and Donald Fisher collection, with dedicated galleries spanning the careers of Andy Warhol, Alexander Calder, Agnes Martin, Chuck Close, Gerhard Richter, and many more. Experience the new SF MoMA, where kids 18 and under always get in free. To book tickets and for more information, visit sfmoma.org. Welcome back. My next guest is Sebastian Smee, the Pulitzer Prize-winning art critic of the Boston Globe. His new book, published by Random House, is The Art of Rivalry, 
It looks at how four pairs of artists benefited from competitive friendships as they furthered their work. Sebastian Smee, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. Art historians have been fascinated for, with rivalry uh, for a very long time, since the Renaissance, since Vasari. You write in the book that the book itself came out of a, a lecture you were invited to give. But I wonder if the 2009 MFA Boston show on Titian, Tintoretto, and Veronese had an impact on your thoughts or your interest in rivalry. Oh, I think it did very much. Yeah, it was a terrific show, and it, it, it pitted these three artists against each other uh, you know, in, in, in the Venetian Renaissance. But I think the operative word there is it, it pitted against. You know, it, it really was about that that sort of, I think, in some ways, old-fashioned or certainly you know, a hyper-masculine idea of rivalry as people being pitted against each other and, and sort of fighting to the death. It really did feel like that because they were in, in, in Venice at that time fighting for commissions. And, you know, you had this sort of Oedipal relationship as well with Titian and, and, and then the two younger artists beneath him, Veronese and Tintoretto. So, you know, that was very exciting. I was incredibly stimulated by it. It was packed with great works. But I would say I think the idea was already in my head before that. And I was attracted to a more sort of intimate idea of rivalry that I noticed in these relationships. You know, I, you mentioned, and I'd said this in the acknowledgments of my book, that, that yes, that speech generated the idea, but sort of only really in a practical sense, in the sense that, you know, I used the text of that speech as a, as a, as a, a proposal, which went to, to some publishers. But I think it was sort of swirling around in my head before that and probably was born when I when I got to know Lucien Freud in London and became aware of his relationship with Francis Bacon. You know, I think maybe before we get too much further or farther, I can never remember which, it's important to define rivalry as you presented here because I think your use of the word rivalry uh, and the concept of rivalry is a little more layered than maybe the, the contemporary social media style usage of the word tends to be yeah it's right i mean it's a, it is tough to define and in a sense that the title you know it's already extended isn't it but it could have been extended a bit more because it isn't just about rivalry it really is about friendship and rivalry and about what happens when one person sort of falls under the spell of another artistically but also in terms of you know relationships I really feel that in each of the four relationships I describe here, you, you had this, this, this sort of dual movement where it was a competition, yes, but it started out slightly differently. It started out as one person being sort of susceptible, needing to have something in their own way of working, kind of, if you like, detonated because they were stuck. They were, they were, they were you know, in each case, very talented and full of promise of sort of latent greatness, if you like, but it was when they fell under the spell of this other person that things really started to get going. And so my sense of rivalry is that it, that it is it is almost a sort of, someone told me that the roots of the word have to do with, with people being on different sides of the one river, but drawing from the same source. I, I don't know. I never really checked that out, but it, it's a useful idea that, you, you know, you, you are different, you're on different sides of a river, but you are drawing on this same source. And in a sense, that source is one another, drawing on that source for stimulation, for inspiration, and also for the sort of challenge, you know, when you are 
challenged by someone else, when you're in a competition with them, you know, I think that can be a great stimulant. And in a sense, that's what the book is about, the stimulation that the other person provides. And it, it simplifies things, I think, because in each case, it's incredibly important to recognize that there were many other rivals, sources of inspiration, uh, friendships, crucial friendships, crucial influences. And so in a sense, each chapter in my book is, is very reductive. It, it, it focuses on one particular relationship. But I was convinced that in each case, that one relationship was the most important at that crucial time in each artist's career. Art historians often focus on on kind of a work versus work or work, you know, painting A, painting B concept. At the end of writing the book, did you, or in the process of writing the book, did you decide that personal engagement was, was maybe at least as important or more important than canvas versus canvas? I did feel that, you know, and I, and I felt awkward about it because I know it's, it's, it's perhaps not really the fashion to, to focus on psychodynamics and personal relationships to the extent that I have here. I think there's lots of reasons why that's out of fashion. And saying it's out of fashion is, is you know, to put a pejorative spin on it. There are real problems with, with the approach that I've taken, which is a more biographical approach. It, it involves speculation. It involves guessing about the psychodynamics and it involves a fair amount of, of sort of gossip value uh, as well. And I'm, I'm very conscious of that. But getting to know Lucien Freud and then reading these extraordinary biographies about, uh, about the artists that I've written about and other artists, I think you become aware that these sorts of personal relationships do in fact matter a great deal. And artists tend not to think about the development or the history of art in the sort of dialectical terms that one does in, in the academy, in universities and so on. They really do, I think, feel incredibly motivated by fellow artists and by particular relationships. And that just, I just felt that coming through again and again and again. And, and you know, as a, I said, me, sort of meeting Lucien Freud and getting to know him in London, I realized that, that Bacon, Francis Bacon, had had this enormous impact on him. On, and a lot of that was, was documented and talked about in art historical terms. But I had this feeling that one shouldn't even ask him about it. It was a sort of topic that was off limits. And, you know, I was finally invited to do a, a, an interview with him that would be recorded. And by that time, I'd moved from London, where I was living for four years, back to Australia. So... They flew me over to London to do the interview. Uh, I had two weeks in London. The interview didn't happen until the very last night before I returned. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I, I had to wait that entire time, sort of not knowing when or if it was actually going to happen, even though I knew that in theory he'd agreed, but he was just very impulsive and he didn't quite know what was ever happening. So when it finally did happen, we sat down and <laughs> I did this, what I thought was a great interview late at night. And flew back to Australia the next day, wrote the interview up, sent it to the publishers, and they said, look, this is great, but it seems a pity that you didn't ask about Francis Bacon. And <laughs> indeed I hadn't because I was so nervous about raising the subject. So they said, look, why don't you fly back? And they, they paid for me to, to fly back. I sat down with Freud again, this time with his, his assistant, David Dawson, in the room. Uh, and I think it was David who raised the subject of Bacon. Uh, and then I kept asking him more and more. And I was just so astonished at, at, at the stories that came out. And I realized that 
yes, the, the, the sort of formal influence, the aesthetic influence, if you like, was important, but it was absolutely bound up with the impact that Bacon had had on him as a person. His particular charismatic personality, his, his, his charm, his ability to change a situation you know, and, and, and in the most dramatic and exciting way. And as Freud said, this related completely to how he thought about his art. And I think Freud was just very much uh, affected by this on every level, from the personal to the aesthetic. And I felt that was true with, with all three other relationships I wrote about as well. Mm. You know, Freud was the Berlin-born son of German and Austrian Jews, and Bacon was Irish. De, de Kooning was an undocumented immigrant from the Netherlands, and Pollock was a Westerner. Matisse was from northern France, a textile, a muddy textile town, and Picasso, of course, was, was Spanish. You know, three of the four sets of artists in the book come from, you know, starkly, dramatically, massively different backgrounds, and they are thrown together or come together in a third place. What role or impact do you think that mix of background and, and a shared new third space has on, uh, on, on the idea of, uh, or concept of rivalry? That's a great question. I mean, it's, I'm, I'm very conscious of the fact that, that, you know, each of them was, was, as you say, coming from a sort of, uh, a, a provincial or foreign place to a cosmopolitan center. And I think that movement clearly affected the way they thought about, perhaps gaining access to the, to, to, to the center of this cosmopolitan place, whether it be Paris or, or, or London or New York. And I'm, I'm sure fired their ambition. It's interesting to me as well that the sort of the supporting cast, you know, the crucial collectors, for instance, were often from elsewhere. And, and that, I mean, I think that's especially true with Matisse and Picasso, but also with the others. I mean, you know, with Matisse and Picasso, it's, it's Americans, isn't it, and Russians who provide that absolutely crucial, fundamental support in those early breakthrough years. And so that's fascinating, isn't it? What, what role does it play in rivalry? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, when, when you come from the outside to the center, as it were, you just come with, 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 with perhaps a, a fresher perspective, but also a greater hunger. And, you know, that, that hunger to make it in the, in, in the sort of metropolitan center and, you know, we're talking in very broad brushstrokes here, I realize. But uh, yeah, I, I think that just that simple sort of increased degree of hunger can often make the rivalry in question more volatile, more more explosive potentially. And and I think it, in, in each of the cases that I write about, there was a very explosive element. You know, there was this wonderful period of, of admiration, susceptibility, yielding, influence, but then things kind of went sour in different ways in each case. You mentioned the Steins. Do you think outside factors, such as the Steins, one of them or them as a group, do you think when outside factors are engaged with two different artists at the same time that, that there is an intent to stoke a rivalry between painters? Or do you think it just happens because of simple human dynamics, people want to be the favorite? You know, the, the, there's often been the... The narrative hasn't there that that, that uh, Gertrude and Leo really did stoke 
the rivalry between Matisse and Picasso and, and you know, Gertrude's famous division of people into, you know, Matisseites and Picassoites. Uh, but not just Gertrude, you know, you had uh, Leo, who was initially very much Matisse's champion and then switched to Picasso as well. And you had Sarah and Michael Stein, who really kind of stuck with Matisse and played a hugely important role in, in his career through the same period. And, you know, that, that was something that Hilary Sperling especially brought to light and really made us all aware that that had been underplayed. And so, so did the relationship between and among the Steins sort of affect the way the rivalry developed between Matisse and Picasso? I think so, for sure. And, and not just them. I think, you know, the various writers and poets and so on who were sort of on one side or the other, and indeed the fellow artists. I mean, the famous switch by Braque and Durand to, uh, you know, from Matisse and Fauvism to Picasso and Cubism. You know, that, all of it had a big impact on uh, the story of, of Matisse and Picasso's reception. And in a way, and this is a, you know, something I float in the book in different ways, you know, I think it exaggerated the competitive nature of the rivalry, you know, when in fact things were more, they, they, they were less dramatic and less opposed, less sort of oppositional, if you like, without those influences. I think it's there as well with de Kooning and Pollock. I mean, it, it's really, you know, the battle between Clement Greenberg and Harold Rosenberg that, that, that exaggerates that rivalry into something that it wasn't necessarily going to be without that. You know, it, it could have been more, what's the word? It's sort of that, that intimacy, that closeness, that receptiveness might have stayed in place a little longer had it not been for these outside influences. I think that's absolutely true, yeah. Do you think any of these eight artists sought out individuals with whom they could have the kind of rivalrous relationship they had? Was it important for them to find a, a single artist as spur, if you will? Yeah, I think so. But again, it wasn't necessarily a, a, a spur in the rivalrous sense at the beginning. It was someone who, you know, they really fell under the spell of. So a kind of stimulant in a positive sense, not just as a, as a sort of enemy to battle against. You know? And I think that, yeah, you know, that they, I think Degas really needed money at that point when he was working away in the late 1850s and early 1860s you know his his family despaired of, of you know whether he'd ever finish anything he started he was making these in many ways very sophisticated and and fascinating works but they were in this sort of academic tradition and you know complex retellings of histories and myths and, and so on and along comes money and just opens something up, I think, in, in, in Degas' brain. And it's, it's not only about the switch from you know, these academic subjects to a more lively, contemporary kind of subject matter, but it's, it's, it's everything else as well. It's, it's you know, Manet's handling of paint. Degas has been such a kind of linear artist in the, in the, the tradition of, of Ang. And, and the way Manet handles paint, I think, has a huge impact on him you know, the fluency with which he, he, he painted and as well just this, again, this, this sort of personal aspect, this, this ability that, that Manet had to, to be sort of 
insouciant, you know, the, the nonchalant. These French words, you know, becomes become handy at this point. You know, that there's a there's a sort of fluency in in Manet's whole approach to life. I think that Degas finds very attractive at this moment because he is feeling anything but fluent. He's feeling incredibly kind of stuck. And yeah, in a sense, whether they're, they're seeking these people out in each case or whether they're just lucky to find them at that moment, it's very hard to say. But I, I think, you know, there was something lacking in the one that they found in the other in each case. And it sort of becomes mutual to some extent. But at the beginning of each relationship, it's kind of one way. And perhaps that asymmetry is what makes it rather volatile. Seven of your eight artists lived long lives and kind of a different seven <laughs> of the eight maintained engagements with their primary rivals throughout those long lives. You mostly, but not entirely, but mostly write about their early engagements with each other. Books can only be so long, of course. Did you, in the course of writing it or after writing it, also reflect on how the relationships worked at the ends of those artists' lives? I did. And, and you know, I was conscious of all that, you know, from before I started. I mean, thanks to, to those great shows like the Matisse and Picasso exhibition, which traced their influence on each other throughout their careers right up to the end. And I was also conscious of it from having read, you know, the superb biographies of, of Pollock and of de Kooning and of... Matisse and of Picasso and so on. Mark Stevens and Annalyn Swan's Francis Bacon biography coming soon. I know. When is that coming? I, I'm, 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 I can't wait to read it. I, and I know Bill Fever's biography of, of Lucien Freud is sort of getting closer and closer to, to being finished too. So there's some great things on, on the way, that's for sure. But yeah, you know, I, I really wanted to focus, not only just to, to, to keep it at a manageable length, but I really wanted to focus on the early stages of these relationships, because I think it's there that so much that's really fascinating happens. I, you know, I just found the stories very moving. I, I think we forget often how utterly vulnerable these artists were. You know, Manet, when he's innovating in that way in the 1860s, is a subject of such relentless abuse and ridicule, and he just he, he just doesn't. He must have been so dismayed, and yet the courage he showed in keeping on going. And that was also very true with, with Matisse. It was true with, with Pollock and de Kooning. There were so few people who thought that what they were doing was any good. And most people thought that, that they were kind of mad and indulgent and had a, a sort of violent reaction against it. And so in that context, I think that a fellow artist who you respect, who has clear sort of natural talent, whatever their differences from you, the fact that they are looking at what you're doing and that they may be, you know, in friendly relations with you. I mean, there are different levels of friendship between each of these pairs, but, you know, there were friendly relations at the very least. And, and in, in some cases, quite intense relationships, I think. To have that person there, I think, was crucially important at these very early stages of their careers when they were making these breakthroughs, because it, it provided that kind of affirmation that makes it possible to go on. And finally, as you note in at least one place in the book, you've chosen four male-on-male rivalries. Why all men? That's a good question. I mean, I, I, I you know, wish that there was some overriding abstract uh, explanation for that that sounded convincing. But it was really because I was fascinated by these particular artists 
in the early stages of conceiving the book, I was very excited by the links between them all. I, I feel I've ended up underplaying that somewhat because it tended to muddy the narrative, but there are all sorts of connections between each of these pairs and, and I have complicated sort of diagrams with arrows going in every direction, actually beginning with, you know, Ang and Delacroix, you know, this famous opposition, um, which is much more of a traditional, you know, enemies slugging it out kind of rivalry, but, you know, you have the oppositional, exactly. You, uh, you know, and you have line against color and you have romantic against classical. And, and my feeling was that it sort of gets more and more complex and nuanced and less and less this sort of binary opposition as you get further into the modern the modern era. And so my diagrams sort of <laughs> tried to, to demonstrate all these complexities. But, you know, I, I think that period that I write about is still a very patriarchal uh, period from the 1850s to the 1950s. That whole period, uh, you know, in terms of uh, famous artists was dominated by men. And I tried to think about female rivalries and there are of course many famous ones but they tend to be you know a, a, a woman's relationship with a lover or husband so a woman with a man and you think of Frida Kahlo and, and Diego Rivera you think of Georgia O'Keeffe and, and Edward Steichen and you, you, sorry Alfred Stieglitz uh, yeah and you know those relationships uh, are sort of complicated in a different way I think and you know, different psychodynamics, different structures of gender politics are at play. And so, yeah, I think there are going to be many, many, you know, fascinating stories to tell of relationships between women and between women and men as we go forward in time, you know, from, from, you know, all, you know, from the 1950s really on. I mean, there, there are many fascinating relationships and I think it'll, it'll be great as we learn more and more about the more intimate things that, that happen between people. Um, I've been the, the beneficiary of so much original, wonderful research in, in, in the biographies and the exhibition catalogs and so on that, that I used for my book. And I didn't, you know, there's not a lot of original research in my book at all. I, I, I want to make that clear. You know, there are, there, I did as much as I could, but it, it, I was extremely reliant on these superb uh, multi-volumes, in many cases, biographies by 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 great scholars. You mentioned marital relationships. I mean, at least, this is off the top of my head, at least five of the eight, maybe six of the eight artists, six of the eight artists in your book either had spouses um, who were artists or, or significant others who were artists, I mean, with Picasso, you know, or, or taught women who had significant careers, say Matisse and, and Gabriel Munter, in their own in their own rights. So, I mean, there's obviously a different relationship between teacher and student, but but there are kind of uh, I don't know interesting layers of, of of gender throughout. There really are, yeah. And and there's a lot of you know incredibly interesting, gifted, and impressive women who you know who played key roles in each of the relationships I was talking about uh, in my book. But yeah, you know, I think that I, I was there was there was a specific pattern that I that I felt was there in each of these relationships and and you know it was between one artist who was you know slightly stuck at, at a certain point and another who was more fluent it was between one who had a, a talent for drawing and another whose talent was more in the line of painting and so on and so forth and and it, it, that's that really determined the choice of the artists i wrote about sebastian smee thanks so much for talking with me thank you tyler it was a pleasure 
That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.